Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello everyone, Simon here. Welcome back to the show. This week I am chatting to author, therapist, coach and anxiety expert Chloe Brotheridge. Now I've had quite a few emails from people recently talking about anxiety and looking for answers to how to manage it better and stop it being such a debilitating factor in their own lives. And that's why I'm delighted to share this conversation with Chloe. Now rates of anxiety were already rising rapidly before the pandemic and they've shot up since the world changed so dramatically in 2020. Anxiety is clearly a huge issue and one I've had really first-hand experience of. In my 20s, it got so bad, I developed really unpleasant insomnia, which I'm glad to say I overcame using many of the techniques, tools and strategies we discuss in the following conversation. Now, one of the most powerful tools I found was a counterintuitive one, acceptance. And that's something Chloe and I discuss. There's exposure therapy too, which is basically gradually expanding your comfort zone, as well as other tools, including non-violent communication, which is something I've previously spoken about in my weekly newsletter, Monday on Monday. Plus, we share our shared belief that we are born with an innate sense of well-being and peace, but we lose sight of it as we age and the thinking mind comes online, adding a layer of judgments, predictions and concepts. It was a pleasure to chat to Chloe. She's done some amazing work in this area and I hope this conversation can be of help to you if anxiety is something that gets in the way of your life. Chloe Brotheridge, how are you? Lovely to see you. I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very pleased to have you on the podcast. You and I have a few things in common, one of which 
is that we both had battles with anxiety. However, I would suggest that the battle with anxiety has ended up informing the work that you now do. So are you able to look at your anxiety as a blessing now? That's interesting you say that because I was talking to another anxiety therapist earlier today on a podcast and we were saying how you know he was saying you know I wouldn't change it and I have to say I agree I think when you see yourself learn and grow and change there's something very rewarding about that and I think as well there are gifts that come along with being on the anxious side or having a mind that can can go to those places being more empathetic having a good imagination there are you know good sides to that and I think if we can embrace it and accept that part of ourselves and channel it in something good I think it can definitely be a good thing and that's something a little bit rewarding isn't it because let's be honest when you're in the middle of battling anxiety and I think the battling's part of the problem it feels far from a blessing in the moment absolutely yeah definitely wasn't when I was having panic attacks and thinking I was dying I wasn't thinking this will make a great book someday (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah, when you're in it, it can feel very heavy and hard and endless and awful. But um, I think particularly now, having learned a lot about it and overcome a lot of it myself, if I am going through something now, I can kind of see the other side. I can start to think, actually, you know what? This sucks right now, but I'm going to come out the other side of this because I have done before. Yeah. You talked about some of the benefits in terms of being creative and all those kind of things. And so for me, one of the first things is understanding what sort of nervous system you've got. So I know some people, my father, for example, he could have an argument late at night, let's say, he'll still be out of sleep 10 minutes later. Whereas I've got the sort of nervous system, once it's revved up, I need to let it settle like a snow globe. So in the work you do, do you really encourage people to get to know their nervous systems? Yeah, that's interesting. Really interesting. I think I would describe it as that. I know that there's some of us who are just more sensitive. You know, I've been, I've been reading a lot about highly sensitive people recently and how that is a whole kind of category and, you know, being sensitive to loud sounds or um, being very sensitive to the feelings of other people and kind of absorbing that and taking it on board. There's actually a name for that. Oh, yeah. What is it? So, yeah, an HSP, being a highly sensitive person. So, I mean, there's a whole list of different kind of symptoms, if you will, for that. I know for myself, I definitely have a more sensitive nervous system than my partner, for example, or some of my friends. And I know I need to take care of myself in certain ways and calm calm my nervous system down, winding down before bed, for example, or not staying up late night after night after night. And I think, yeah, we need to to be aware of that and know that it's, it's okay for us to be different than other people. You know, we've all got our own past. We've all got our own unique chemical makeup. And there's so many things that could dictate how sensitive we feel. And so I think don't judge yourself if you are that way. Yes, indeed. So understanding and then accepting the kind of nervous system you have. And we're going to talk a lot about acceptance. And we're also going to talk about boundaries, self-worth, much more besides. But I thought a good leaping off point is to really define anxiety. You know, I know what it feels like in terms of the racing thoughts, the knot in the stomach or that rising feeling of dread, for example. But how would you define what anxiety actually is? So anxiety is a normal feeling. Everyone has worried about things, apart from psychopaths, apparently. Apparently, psychopaths don't experience fear or anxiety. They just don't have so much amygdala activity. But everyone else, the the rest of the 99% of us, will get nervous, fearful, afraid, worried from time to time. And actually, that's normal. And yet, if we're experiencing that 
to a degree where it's happening every day, where it's getting in the way of our lives, where it's stopping us from enjoying things, then we can start to think of it as more of an anxiety disorder. And that's something that your doctor will diagnose. They'll ask you various questions and, and figure out whether you've got mild, moderate or severe anxiety. But I suppose the main the main symptoms are often very physical, I think. Um, the racing heart, the knot in your stomach, as you were saying, the shaking, sweating, not being able to keep still, problems with sleep. So a lot of anxiety, I think people don't realise this if they've never experienced it, is very physical. It just seems, you know, it's so it's so real and visceral. And then there are the more mental sides of anxiety worrying, catastrophizing, going to the worst case scenario, not being able to switch off, having intrusive thoughts or very negative thoughts. It's normal, but if it's getting in the way of someone's life, if it's stopping you from doing what you want to do, then you know, we need to need to do something about that and get some help for it. So in your experience, if someone has an anxiety disorder, how easy is it to bring them back into having an experience of anxiety that wouldn't be classed as disordered? Good question. Good question. I think it's easy to, to tell ourselves, and I did this, I told myself, no one understands me. I'm an anxious person. I'm always going to feel like this. No one else has ever felt this way. This kind of unique, I'm uniquely broken and flawed. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it is something that is treatable. It is something that we can get better from and at least manage. I don't really like to use the word curing anxiety because I think you can't cure yourself from a normal emotion, but it's possible for all of us to, to do things and find tools and, and approaches that help us and heal the root causes of why we might be feeling anxious. But I think the first step is we've got to, we've got to know that it's possible. We've got to believe that we can change and we've got to feel like we're not alone and we're not kind of just feeling ashamed and alone with what we're experiencing and kind of keeping it to ourselves. So I think it's possible for, for all of us to make progress. And understanding, like you say, that it is normal. It's a normal part of the human experience to feel fear, to feel anxiety. Just knowing that can be extremely empowering in itself. Yeah, I think we're not very good in our culture at feeling our feelings or sitting with discomfort. And it's almost like it's it's not acceptable for us to be feeling sad or nervous. We kind of, we can maybe label it too soon or we, we say, oh, I'm depressed. You know, I've been sad for two days. I'm depressed now. Um, when actually it's normal to feel down sometimes. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal to feel nervous. And it's not our fault. We're not taught how to cope with emotions, how to deal with them, how to feel them. We're taught to distract ourselves, to numb ourselves, to you know, have a drink after a stressful day to, you know, cut loose at the weekend. You know, you don't like your job, but, you know, you know go and party at the weekend and or watch tons of Netflix or buy loads of stuff on Amazon. And um, there is something about learning to feel our feelings and, and sit with the discomfort. And I know it's hard and I find it hard as well. So <laughs> That is such an important and fundamental thing to be able to do, sit with uncomfortable feelings. And actually, you mentioned the word distraction and it's never been so easy to distract ourselves. And obviously you mentioned the big ones that have been going on for decades, right? The big weekends, the shopping trip sprees. But then we've got the digital devices that are always within arm's reach. And so for the first time ever, we can always be distracted. Do you get a sense then because of that propensity to, or the ease with which we can distract ourselves, 
what may have previously been understood to be a normal feeling feels so much more intense purely because we're just not used to feeling it. Yeah, we're not used to feeling it. And I heard from a lot of people actually, weirdly, like when the first lockdown happened, people were suddenly alone a lot more. They didn't have their friends to distract them. They didn't have their job, like going somewhere, maybe they're on furlough. And one of the hardest things for them was being alone with their thoughts, being alone with their feelings and having having less distractions, even though they would have had their phone. So sometimes when we get a bit quieter, things can bubble up to the surface. But if we never give ourselves a chance to process our feelings and our thoughts, we're constantly distracted or we're busy, you know, busyness, constantly on the go doing things is another distraction then things don't get a chance to get processed. And then maybe one day, you know, we experience a bereavement or we lose our job. We've we've suddenly got this different routine and things really come up to the surface and we have a bit of a meltdown. So with the people you work with, do you encourage them then to get used to sitting with themselves, their feelings, their emotions? Definitely. Yeah, there was something I learned a while ago. It's called the Sedona method. And it, it basically, it's, it's a bit complicated, but the, the simplest way to describe it is whenever you're feeling something that you don't want to feel, like you're feeling angry, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling nervous, you say to yourself, could I welcome this feeling? Could I welcome this feeling? And you have this sense of kind of opening to the feeling or just allowing it to be there for that time. And at first, this can be really quite confronting to actually sort of welcome a feeling that we don't want when we're so used to all the time pushing it down trying to suppress it kind of keep it at at bay but actually welcoming it and it's really interesting when we can do that what happens and very often we find that the feeling starts to kind of dissolve away or melt away or we realize that it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be or um, it's, it's, it's a way of processing it essentially rather than just shoving it down so we just say to ourselves, can I welcome this feeling? I just found it really powerful. And I get a lot of my clients, all my clients, I would say, doing that. So it's a form of acceptance. But I guess if you're doing it in order to get rid of it, that can be a bit of a catch-22. You've got to actually have that attitude of, oh, I want to welcome it. I want to be interested in it. But not with this secret you know, <laughs> thought in the back of your mind thinking, because I want it to go away. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think that could be another way of trying to just suppress it. But, you know, if we can just be be with the sensations, you know, looking at it as a sensation, right? feeling anxious, what's the sensation here? It's like a tingling feeling in my fingers, or I'm noticing it. It's a hot, tight feeling in my chest. If we can get curious about that, and, and just say, can I welcome this? Can I just can I just be with this for now? It can start to become processed, or we can handle it in a more constructive way than distracting ourselves, perhaps. Yes, I like what you said there about the sensation, because if you take yourself to the sensation or take your attention to the sensation, it's just this tingling, amorphous, neutral thing, really. It might be a bit intense, but it's the storyline that we whack on top of it, isn't it? That's the bit that plays a merry havoc. Yes, the story that we tell ourselves. I've definitely found myself, this is is the pattern that I can sometimes get myself into, like, oh, I don't feel good. And then my brain goes into overgear and I'm like, why don't I feel good? What, why is this happening? What's going on? What's the problem in my life that I need to solve? And the story about it is so much worse than this feeling of, oh, I feel a bit a bit down today. And if I can just focus on the feeling without trying to turn it into a story, it's actually a lot more manageable than kind of making a story about it. 
So another thing I saw you post, which I thought was very interesting, and it reads something like, I'm noticing things that make me anxious now that were things I wasn't allowed to do as a child. For example, making mistakes, needing attention. So feelings of anxiety, we can trace them all back to childhood, right? And it's all about patterns that formed when we were, uh, everything was about us. Everything was either done to us or for us or caused by us. And so we personalized everything. But it's all about childhood patterns is essentially what I'm getting at, right? Yes. I think a lot of our stuff, if not all of our stuff, does come back to the experiences that we had when we were younger and you know when we're when we're young as you're saying we we kind of absorb things I like to think of us like we're like we're sponges before the age of about seven or eight and we don't understand the context of situations we don't understand that adults do things for their own reasons and you know not, things aren't all to our fault and to do with us but because we're just absorbing things, we can really create these programs that can last us a lifetime unless we we address them later on. But it might have been that certain behaviours that you took on board when you were younger around being told off, like keeping quiet or pleasing other people, perhaps that really helped you at the time. Perhaps that was useful for helping you to deal with, you know, a difficult situation. And it might be that as an adult, you know, you've obviously outgrown those situations, but those patterns can still remain with us. And I think, if you find any kind of tricky, challenging thing in your life, we can nearly always root it back to there's a re- there was a reason we did, we took on board that pattern and it helped us at the time, but it, you know we've outgrown it now. So it's about reprocessing those patterns. I think in adulthood, definitely. And you say we repeat what we don't repair. That was another post of yours. As you can see, I've been really going through your uh, your feeds. But yeah, so in terms of how a pattern could form, I often use the example of let's say a father who's unexpressive, emotionally unexpressive. So a child feels that they are not loved and therefore forms an opinion, a belief, I'm unlovable. When in fact, all it was was, no, they were loved, but the father had their own patterns of being unable to express himself. So that this was mm. entirely impersonal, had nothing to do with you really at all. But we end up personalizing it. And this is how patterns just perpetuate and go on and on and on and on. I just wonder if you had any examples or thoughts along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I've got so many examples. So the example of being told off, you know, I was told off a lot as a child. And I took that to mean I'm bad. I'm somehow not okay. And I need to be really good, really well behaved, really nice in order to to not get told off, in order to get love. And so carrying that forwards that manifests itself as trying to be good all the time trying to please other people trying to be really nice at the expense of my feelings or what I want or what I I really think is right and that can cause all sorts of problems for yourself you know if you're a people pleaser you end up burning out you end up resenting people because they take advantage of you but it's kind of your own fault really so that's one example another example might be you are speaking in the classroom and you you know say the wrong thing and everyone laughs at you or the teacher tells you off for something you know I've had so many clients that I've worked with where one one event like that can really stay with you of like getting laughed at by your peers in front of the class and that could result in you feeling a ton of anxiety when you have to go and speak on on stage at work you know 40 years later or something so it can be those little moments that can really stick with us subconsciously and and create anxiety or create those unhelpful patterns as you as you say so 
if someone came to you and with various patterns running, how would you encourage someone to understand what their patterns are to start with? So we might look at what patterns they're experiencing in their life. And then I might say, you know, when was the first time you, you experienced that? I'm a hypnotherapist, so we'll, I'll use quite often hypnotherapy. And we literally ask the subconscious to, you know, find the first event that was linked to that. And it's, it's not magic or anything kind of mystical hypnotherapy. It's just about getting, getting into a really clear state of mind where we can just find those connections more easily and we can access not necessarily hidden memories, but we can just think more clearly about things that have happened. So it might be that we, we ask the subconscious, you know, when was the first time you felt that feeling of shame and like you weren't good enough? And they go back to getting told off at school. And then we might do something around helping, helping that person to see things differently, to actually see things from the teacher's point of view. What was going on for the teacher? You know, oh, they were having a terrible day. They'd just gone through a divorce. They were in a really bad mood. They took it out on you. It actually wasn't anything to do with you. Or just seeing it from a different kind of perspective. Sometimes I ask people to see it from, like, what would a fly on the wall have to say about this? A fly on the wall that doesn't have any emotions or can see things from lots of different perspectives. Just to shift our perspective on what happened in the past, that can be quite powerful in helping us to shift how we experience things in the moment and, and changing that pattern for us. So once someone's recognized the pattern, I'm unlovable or I'm bad or whatever it may be, is it about in your experience, that pattern will keep on running, but recognizing it and stopping to identify with it, like it'll have a momentum of its own. So it will keep going, but then recognizing, oh, hang on, this isn't reality. This is a story. I think you're right. Having that awareness is the first step. It's like we keep falling down a pothole like again and again. And if we're aware of that pothole, we can find a way to move around it or cover it over or heal that kind of pothole. But so often, you know, we've all got we've all got something like that, those repeated patterns that we keep getting into again and again. And it's so it causes so many problems in our relationships, in our in our lives. It can be really frustrating. I mean, there are lots of people, of course, you're aware of the pattern, but you still are noticing that it gets recreated again and again. So awareness can be really good, but sometimes it's not enough. We have to do something else to, to change it. Something I would just say, and I know you're a meditator, the beauty, I think, for me of meditation amongst other things. So one would be that recognizing that the story is a story and your thoughts pop up of their own accord. You don't choose them. They're just this pop, 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 and we personalize them. So that for me is one. But also that choice point, just that millisecond to choose a more healthy response rather than reaction. So would that be one way of doing step two? Definitely. I think I often call it being at the controls of your mind rather than being on autopilot. So when we meditate, we're more at the controls. We're more able to say, oh, hang on, I'm noticing this, this feeling's coming up for me and I've got a choice about how I respond. I've definitely, in the past before I was meditating, been a lot more prone to just be on autopilot, like, oh, I get criticized, I'm going to go on the defense. You know, I feel embarrassed, I'm going to run away. But actually being more mindful, being more present allows us to make that choice. And there's another thing that I would suggest is step two, and that's rewriting the, the script or rewriting the, the thing that happened in the past so once you've identified perhaps a, a, a experience that's kind of a root cause one thing I get people to do quite often is to write a letter to their younger self about what had happened and actually share with them a different perspective share with them your 
dad was really stressed about his work. He wanted to spend time with you, but he was so busy and he just you know, didn't have the time. It wasn't actually to do with you. And actually his dad never had time for him and it's kind of gone down the generations. So kind of explaining things to your younger self, letting, letting them know that they're loved, letting them know that they're okay. That can be really powerful in reprogramming whatever story you took on board at the time so that you can you can change it in your in your present so have your clients found that to be particularly effective yeah yeah I do it with a lot of people a lot of people we sometimes do it in hypnosis so we do it as like a visualization where you you meet your younger self and you give them a hug and you tell them that they're okay and I would say like this is a sort of exercise where people are like yeah yeah like that's a bit a bit fluffy but it is (laughs) powerful it is it is powerful and People very often cry when they do it. They very, very often cry. And I think that can be a good thing because it's, it's bringing stuff up that wants to be healed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do a lot of people come to you with the story of, oh, I had a wonderful childhood. And then after you've worked with them for a bit, they go, actually... Crikey, it wasn't quite as perfect as I thought. Yeah, I don't want to say they're in denial. <laughs> they're not in denial, but there's a lot of people that that say to me, you know, my parents did their best. And it's not about it's not about making your parents wrong. It's not about blaming. It's about acknowledging we are the way we are for a reason. It's not their really your parents' fault because they are just the way they are because of their own life experiences, their own childhood, their own stuff. So a lot of people don't want to blame their parents and that stops them from even considering that their parents could have done anything that could impact them going forward. So yeah, you don't have to blame them, but it can just be recognizing, you know, where did this come from? It can be really useful to, to know. Yeah. I think that's a really important point around like you can identify the root or, or where your pattern stems from, but ultimately no one is to blame. There is no fault. I mean, that's quite a sweeping statement, but would you agree with it? Definitely. There's a thing that therapists very often say, and it's that everyone is doing the best that they can with the resources and the abilities that they had at the time. So at the time when you were growing up, your your parents were doing the best. If they could have done better, they would have done better. 
if they'd had more resources, they'd had more skills or more energy or they didn't have the trauma that they had, then they would have done better because we all want to do good, really. Now, Chloe, another thing we have in common is our use of baby analogies. So why don't you start by sharing yours? We're born, I believe, although there's no way of verifying this, but I have a strong sense. We're born knowing that we're, we're lovable and, you know, we deserve to get our needs met. We cry if we don't. You know, we're in the present moment. We're not into overthinking yet. And actually, that is our natural state to know that we're we're worthy and we're lovable and to be in the more in the present moment. And we all have that capability within us that we can connect back to and get back to. I love that. I totally agree with it, but with one slight tweak. I would agree that we know, but not knowing in the sense of there's a thought, oh, I'm lovable. Basically, it's an absence of questioning ourselves. So it's an absence of that storyline about, oh, I'm not, I, I'm not pretty enough, or I'm not clever enough, or I should be better at this, or I should be worse at that. So to me, it's, it's the absence of the storyline, which is the ego. That's why babies have that intrinsic worth. So without the storyline, without any storyline, there is our intrinsic worth. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I love that. Love that. So good. So, so good. So for me, it's about shedding rather than adding. Do you know, like a lot of psychological interventions are about change the negative to a positive, for example, change negative self-talk to positive self-talk. Whereas I think an easier way to do it is just to recognize that it's just this chirpy voice and just like not take it seriously, basically. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. No, I love that. I love that. It's a great way of thinking about it. I think, you know, when you, I don't know what type of meditation you do, but type of, type of meditation I do is called transcendental meditation. And it's with transcending the thought, kind of getting to this, they would say you get to a very deep, deep level, like almost like before the thoughts are made there's kind of a deep part of your mind that transcends all the stuff and when you get to that point you you find yourself feeling really good you get this like really like nice feeling when you're down there and you're just in the present moment you're not actually having thoughts because you're just you've reached this transcend transcendent point and actually I like to think you know if we could live our lives you know from that level it's very not the easiest thing to do but if we can live our lives from that level we we feel better. We we know instinctively what to do. We know um, how to be when we're when we're present and calm and and quiet in our minds. I think a lot of it, like a lot of the thoughts that we have, we're trying to control things. Like I've noticed, if I observe my thoughts, a lot of them have to do with trying to control things or labeling something as good or bad, and like get away from the bad thing, go towards the good thing. And actually, I think there is a more instinctive part of ourselves when our minds can get really quiet actually we know what to do and what to say and how to to respond without needing to control everything all the time now i want to talk about um the role acceptance plays in dealing with anxiety i've heard you talk about it and it's a very popular topic is this idea of like self-love in terms of dealing with anxiety and in terms of loving yourself quote unquote what role does acceptance play it's interesting, isn't it? I think, the, firstly, the word self-love can be off-putting for people because I think we have connotations about self-love. Like I remember in secondary school, you love yourself was like a big insult. It's like, oh, you love yourself. You love yourself. Like you're arrogant. You're too, you're too full of yourself. I don't know if people said that. This is in the north of England. And if you're in a really low place, the idea of like loving yourself can seem like such a far off and unattainable thing. And actually, I think, I think, 
being kind to yourself is the the probably the most important thing and it's probably the number one thing that I I I help people with is is being kind to yourself I think it's so so essential and I suppose that that does tie into acceptance that we're not bad and we deserve just like every other human being kindness and compassion just in the same way as we would be kind to someone that was suffering or struggling with something and that can come very naturally for us when we're when we're talking to someone else but it can be really difficult with ourselves so so yeah being kind to yourself particularly when you're struggling particularly when things don't go to plan particularly when you make a mistake and um it might not be that you accept you know you're okay with the mistake but it's it's being kind to yourself knowing you're human you're going to make mistakes and and you can learn from that and it's okay even though you made a mistake you're still okay so that would be my my take on it and what about acceptance related to anxiety specifically so for example the feelings of anxiety etc so i i remember one of the first books i read about anxiety was by claire weeks but she has this saying that we've got to float with anxiety rather than fighting against it and she uses this analogy of imagine imagine you're in the sea and you get caught into a current you've got two choices you can flail your arms around and try to fight against the current or you can let your body go kind of floppy and you can just relax your body and actually your body will float in the in the salt water and so this is kind of like how we can be with anxiety we can either fight against it flail panic resist it or we can welcome the feelings as much as as much as possible accept them embrace them float with them allow the feelings to be there trust that they're they're not going to be there forever and actually this allows us to 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 move through you know what we're feeling more quickly and it changes our relationship you know we can resist something Carl Jung said what you resist persists the more you like, why am I feeling anxious? Why am I panicking? The more you panic, the more kind of wound up you can start to feel. Yeah, it it fuels the fire, doesn't it? Like you say, welcoming those feelings can actually turn it from a feeling that could overwhelm you in, into one of almost excitement. How high on the anxiety battle list would you put acceptance and that welcoming stuff? I, I think it's quite core, actually. I think it's it's about kind of changing our relationship to how we're feeling. And we can resist it or we can welcome it and open to it. And actually, if we're resisting it, we're not going to process it and we're going to maintain it, I think, by trying to push it, push it and suppress it. Whereas so accepting, welcoming, opening to whatever we're feeling, I think, enables us to, to, to cope much better. And I, I like what you said there about excitement and anxiety. Have you heard of, I'm sure you've heard of this study at Harvard. I think it was Harvard Business School where they got people to go on stage and sing don't stop believing by journey oh yeah god that old chestnut yeah what a tune <laughs> you put them into two groups and said one group try to calm down another group tell yourself you're excited and the group that told themselves they're excited you know had a much better experience and you know felt so much better than the group that were trying to calm themselves down so sometimes calming yourself down is not the answer yeah very true someone else gave me the analogy of two people on a on a roller coaster both physiologically having the same feelings, but one is telling themselves, gosh, this is going to be fantastic and exciting. The other one's like, oh my God, get me away from here, please, as quickly as possible. The feelings are the same. It's just that story that's going on that completely transforms the experience, which is what you're saying, basically. Another thing I know you talk about is the gradual expansion of your comfort zone. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I... So I'm going to, I'll use my own life as an example for this. So I used to really struggle with 
public speaking or even meeting people one-on-one. I had social anxiety. Uh, networking events were like, I literally was just like, I can never do that. I literally never do that. I would literally die before I go and do that. And obviously that was kind of limiting me in my life quite a bit. So I, you know, I looked at something called exposure therapy where you, in a step-by-step way, challenge yourself not to the point where you're going to have a panic attack and like have to run away, but challenge yourself in a small way to do something that's uncomfortable, to do something that's a bit scary. And so I started off, I started off just meeting more people for coffees. And that was a bit anxiety provoking for me in the beginning. But the more I did it, the more my nervous system started to realise, actually, you're not going to die. You know, if you go and meet someone, you know, even if it doesn't go as well as you like, you still survive. And actually, quite often it goes quite well. So my nervous system started to calm down. And I I built up from there. And I I started going, um, I think I went to a networking event. And then I did a talk in front of, you know, 10 people. And then I did a talk in front of more people. And then I went on the radio. And those and kind of doing that in a step by step way and kind of training my nervous system that, you know, because when we're in fight or flight, our nervous system thinks we're going to die. It's trying to get us to run away or fight or. And so we need to very gently and slowly, ideally, kind of train ourselves to learn that it's safe. And so these days I can do any kind of public speaking. I might get a bit nervous beforehand, but I don't think I'm going to die. I know that I can do it. So it's about expanding our comfort zone, expanding you know, what, what we're capable of doing. So how do you walk your clients through that experience? It sounds pretty straightforward, but if someone came to you and was like agoraphobic, how would you walk them through those little steps? So it might be about thinking about what is one tiny step that they can take outside of their comfort zone to begin with. So if they're agoraphobic, it might be about going out for five minutes or going, you know, hundred meters down the road and then coming back. And then you know, making sure that person has tools to to calm themselves down, to comfort themselves. You know, we might do something like visualizing it beforehand. So imagining if you've got a presentation and you're really nervous, imagine yourself doing that presentation, feeling grounded, speaking slowly, making eye contact with people, um, breathing deeply as you're as you're speaking, to to mentally rehearse that beforehand so that when you're in that situation, it's easier. So very step by step and mentally rehearse it first is what I would I would suggest for people. Have you ever seen the film Free Solo? Is it about climbing? Yeah, the guy who climbed El Capitan without ropes. I don't watch it, to be honest, I don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It is terrifying. Anyway, I had him on podcast a couple of years ago. And um, it's funny you say that, actually, because people often say, like, how on earth do you get to the point where you can climb something twice as high as the Empire State Building without ropes? One slip and you're going to die, right? You've got to be insane. He was like, not at all. What I did was exactly what you've just said there. It was just this gradual, 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 gradual expanding of his comfort zone. Clearly, the consequences if he'd have had one slip would have been pretty bad. But he knew it so well that he said, but by the time he actually did it on the day, it didn't feel like a bad thing at all. So that is, I think, as a as a sort of analogy or a, a way of realizing how far you can take this particular technique. You can literally climb cliffs twice as high as the Empire Stealth Building without ropes. <laughs> we can dream. Maybe I'll have to work up to watching the documentary step by step. <laughs> yeah, come on, Chloe. Just start with a minute, just the opening credits, move from there. <laughs> Right. A couple more things, Chloe. So first of all, 
Now, you said that you used to be a self-sacrificer, but then I think you've come to this understanding that actually it's controlling behavior subtly, unintentionally. See, I was the other side, right? So I wasn't self-sacrificing. So I'm resistant. But that's also like a form of controlling behavior because I, like my agenda is don't be controlled. Therefore, I'm like controlling to not be controlled. Anyway, my point being, can you just talk a little bit about this and about how basically anytime we have an agenda, that's a problem? So I remember reading something. It was Byron Katie, who's a, she's like a spiritual teacher. But she said, she said something to the effect of, when we're people pleasing, we're trying to manipulate people to love us. We're trying to get them to like us by sacrificing ourselves, doing what they want to do. And it is a kind of manipulation. And actually, other people can kind of pick up on that on some level. Other people can pick up on that. And also what tends to happen, I mentioned this before, is when we put other people first all the time, we are not our best selves because we end up exhausted, resentful, burnt out. And that comes out in other ways towards other people that's like a kind of passive aggressive thing that can can seep out so actually the best thing that we can do for other people is actually to look after ourselves first and then we have more resources and more bandwidth to be there for other people but we can't manipulate people to love us you know you could be the most nice person in the world and someone is still gonna dislike you so we may as well look after ourselves and put ourselves first what that means then is authenticity you could almost define it as the absence of an agenda. Mm, yeah, I like that. I like that. I think I think as well, a lot of like people pleasing or self-sacrificing, if it's coming down to get, you know getting people to like you, but actually if you're not being your true self, you're not going to attract the people into your life that you really want to be with or spend time with or yeah, the people that are going to really appreciate you for years. It's going to be, and it's very exhausting as well to kind of, be someone that you're not. Which leads us actually onto boundaries. I'm guessing boundaries is an important part of the work that you do. It seems like everyone's talking about boundaries now, where a few years ago, no one was really talking about. And often people are surprised when they learn that they're a thing, like surprised that it's okay to say, hang on, this isn't okay with me. Maybe because, you know, for people who have issues with boundaries for such a long time, they've been used to um, going along with things, not voicing their needs, not standing up for themselves, not saying no. And actually it can seem quite a revolutionary idea when we first start to, to do it and, it and really uncomfortable to do when we, ha we have never done that before. I think I think one of the key ones is, is, is learning to say no. I think that's probably one of the biggest ones that I have helped people with. Learning to say no, learning to actually know what it is that we want and need rather than always putting others first or going along with what other people think but no can be very hard to say it's very hard for us to say for a lot of it. is that a bit like you in the free solo movie in that you've just got to you know the first no's hard the second no's a bit easier etc etc it can be like a muscle I think that we get get better at the more we we flex it and another thing I've noticed that can happen is that when other people are not used to you saying no there can be a bit of an adjustment for the other person. So if your boss is used to always putting work on your desk at 5pm on a Friday and you just, you know, do it because you haven't been, you know, good at saying no, if you suddenly start to push back on that, there can be challenges that arise from that and we need to be prepared for, for that and how to handle that and, and sticking to our guns or, you know, thinking about what, how we want to communicate that. But it is something that gets easier and as other people get used to us saying no, it gets easier as well. 
So boundaries is about knowing what is right for you, being authentic to yourself, and then developing the capacity to say no. I think so. Yeah, to say no or to express what your needs are or ask what you want or that sort of thing. Okay, I've got a quick example for you. Imagine someone has a friend who is always complaining. So he's one of those kind of, oh, everything's wrong type characters, right? And so the dynamic of that friendship can be a bit draining. And then that person may go out of their way to do things for you, but you know there's a scoreboard going in the back of their head. You know the kind of archetype of character I'm talking about here. If someone was trying to set boundaries with someone like that, what would your advice to them be? Tricky one, I know. Very tricky, very tricky. I think, I mean, so so often we're not we're not good at having those honest conversations because they can be so uncomfortable. So I think first, acknowledging that it might be a bit of an uncomfortable situation, but that it actually, if that person is important to you and you want to maintain the friendship, then it might be a conversation worth having. You might decide that it's not a conversation worth having because actually that person isn't so important to you. So you've got to kind of make that make that decision. One thing I really like is something called nonviolent communication, oh, yes. which is a weird title, but it's basically how can we say something in a way that takes my needs and the other person's needs into account. And what can very often happen when we when we communicate something is that we we can be kind of subtly or not so subtly blaming the other person, getting their defences up, you know, criticising them in a way that's going to cause them to get defensive. So in nonviolent communication, it's about stating the facts rather than like an opinion. So you know, it might be you say, you know, the last few times we've spoken together, you know, you 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 complained a lot, or you know, there has been a topic of conversation that's been this, this, and this. So you're stating the facts, and then you state about how it makes me feel, it makes you feel. So you say, I often feel quite drained after our conversations, and then you talk about what what your request is. So what your request might be for that person. So, um, I just off the top of my head, like. Can you can you be considerate about how I might be feeling before you kind of bring these problems to me? Because sometimes I'm I get very overwhelmed. You know, everyone's going to know for their own life and their own situation how to say that better. But it's like state the facts, state how you feel. You don't say you make me feel overwhelmed. When this happens, I feel this. That's a better way to communicate. Um, and then what your request after that? So people can maybe experiment with that. That was a masterclass. That was brilliant. I'm sure I've got that book downstairs as well. It won't surprise you to hear. Okay, right. Final thought, Chloe. And to what degree do you go along with this assessment? To me, the ultimate paradox of self-help is to understand that actually we're not actually broken at all. Love it. Wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Wholeheartedly agree. There can be almost like an addiction that happens with self-help when you go on this journey, journey, and you you start to discover more about yourself, you're learning about yourself, you're changing. There can be almost like an addictive quality of it, of, of constantly thinking like, I've got to fix this, I've got to fix this, you know, I'm not okay as I am. And I'm sure I heard this from David Hamilton. I think it's called the like acceptance paradox. Like when when you accept something exactly as it is, like yourself it actually becomes easier for that thing to kind of come into alignment or that thing to change so there's kind of a paradox that we've got to accept ourselves first and know that we're okay and we're worthy and good enough 
And then if there are things that need to change for our health or for our well-being, they become easier to change when we accept ourselves. Right, Chloe, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Just quickly point people in the direction of your website and as well your book. So there's The Anxiety Solution. Could you just point people in the direction of your work, please? Yeah, my books are The Anxiety Solution and The Confidence Solution. Used to be called Brave New Girl, but we changed the title to The Confidence Solution. And my website is karma-u.com. And I've got loads of free resources for anxiety on my website. People want to check that out. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chloe. Thank you very much for, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode with Chloe Brotheridge. I hope you enjoyed it. Anxiety can be hugely debilitating, but ironically, acceptance and moving towards it rather than trying to distract ourselves from it can be a very powerful approach. Just a reminder before I go, please do sign up for my weekly newsletter featuring three useful tips and easily digestible nuggets. It's called Monday on Monday and you can sign up at simonmundy.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.